You're listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Toos, and today I'll be speaking with author, translator, and editor Robin Waterfield about his new translation of Marcus Aurelius's book, Meditations. Mr. Waterfield is a classical scholar who specializes in ancient Greek philosophy and history and has published numerous articles and books. Welcome to the show, Robin. Well, thank you, Mike. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Well, let's, let's get started, if, if we may, with you telling the listeners, who may not be familiar with him, who Marcus Aurelius was. Well, he was the emperor of Rome from March 161 AD until his death in March 180. Uh, in short, then, he was the wealthiest and most powerful man in the Western world. He was born in 121 with the name Marcus Annius Verus, the name by which we know him, Marcus Aurelius, or more fully, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, was his imperial name. He was born into a very wealthy family that was close to the imperial court. As a teenager, he was favored by the emperor Hadrian, and then as a young man by the next emperor, Antoninus Pius. When I say that he was favored by them, I mean that he was promoted to official posts that would teach him how to govern, teach him the kinds of things he would need to know as emperor. And he was betrothed to Antoninus Pius's daughter. So, as I say, he was the wealthiest and most powerful man in the Western world. And to anyone who's read Meditations, that might seem astonishing. Mm. Well, you make the point, or make this point in your wonderful introduction. And by the way, I can't say enough about that introduction for folks who have read other versions of Meditations. You really need to read this one. But you make this point that Marcus Aurelius was a warrior on one hand, and yet he was a man of peace, a reflective man, as reflected in the Meditations on the other, correct? Absolutely right, yes. Um, as you read Meditations, I think a, a sensitive reader will find that there was a big tension in Marcus's life between being the emperor of Rome and following a Stoic path. And an aspect of that is the tension you've just mentioned, Mike. Many people who've read Meditations without any knowledge of Marcus's life might be surprised to know that, according to a pretty reliable historian, Marcus aimed to annihilate at least one of the enemy peoples he was fighting on the Danube River and offered a reward to anyone who would bring in one of their leaders or his head, so dead or alive. But this is the point. Marcus was the emperor, and an emperor was expected to protect his subjects. And it's core Stoic teaching that you have to play the hand you've been dealt. So Marcus had to be emperor. He had no choice in that, even when that made him do things he might otherwise have preferred not to do, such as fighting a brutal war. Hmm. Well, you know, I, look, I've read numerous books, not only for the show, but on my own, but Meditations, and you make this note in your introductions, is a, bit, is a really unique book. Um, can you tell our listeners what you mean by that? Well, plenty of other writers have jotted down their thoughts in personal journals. I mentioned a few of these in the introduction, and I should have mentioned Lord Shaftesbury, whose personal notebooks perhaps come closest in field to meditations. But none of them is as relentlessly personal as Marcus's notebooks. I think here the fundamental point is that he never expected the notebooks to be published. Indeed, he never expected anyone other than himself ever to see a word of them. And I don't think that can be said for all the other journals I mentioned. They are a little or, or more self-conscious, 
But Marcus's journals are completely sincere. They were written by and for himself alone. <clears throat> and there's also a kind of historical reason why the book is unique. It was a stoic practice to critically examine your life and exhort yourself to do better and to write down your thoughts on these topics. So no doubt then others kept similar notebooks to Marcus's, but none has survived. So Marcus's book gives us a unique window onto that stoic practical exercise. Well, you know, you're talking about his journals. People may be surprised if they don't know. Uh, much about meditations that he actually had 12 of them 12 notebooks do we know when he wrote these 12 notebooks and uh, did we know if he wrote them in the order that they are numbered we don't know exactly when they were written but roughly we know that he was at war the war i just mentioned with the markamani and other germanic tribes when he wrote two of the books because he tells us he was out on campaign when they were written so we can say that notebooks two and three were written between 170 and 175. It's also pretty clear, as you read the book, that it was written by an elderly person, and even one who knew that he was close to death. So I think it's safe to say that all the notebooks were written in the decade before his death, in 180. Hmm. I think notebooks two to 12 were probably written in that order, not least because 12 the last notebook, seems to acknowledge his impending death. Notebook one was probably not the first to be written. It was probably tacked onto the front by him as an introduction. Hmm. Well, you mentioned, since you mentioned notebook one, I noted that in the introduction that you point out that notebook one is different from the others. This may be a long question, but can you give us an overview, brief overview of the 12 notebooks? Um, it'd be hard to give an overview of notebooks 2 to 12 because they're essentially identical. It's not as though each notebook covers a different topic. They all cover the same topics. That's the, that's the nature of the work. Marcus cycles around the same topics. And this repetitiousness is a necessary part of the stoic exercise of driving home the lessons you're trying to teach yourself. So notebooks 2 to 12 cover all the topics that interested Marcus, which are chiefly three, how to think of death, how, as it were, to console yourself in the face of death, how to manage anger and deal with the obnoxiousness of people around you, and how to think of fame and the kind of prestige an emperor is bound to have. These are the three topics that engage Marcus more than others, though he touches on many others as well. Well, uh, and I should say, when I say it's repetitious, I don't mean it's at all boring. It's right. just that he, tr he treats the same topics in, in different ways, but these are the topics that he treats most. He's drilling down further each time, in exactly. a way. Yeah. Now, now notebook, notebook one is different, okay. because it's, it's not so reflective. Though there is a common core in Marcus's concern with his own self-improvement. He uses this notebook to acknowledge the people who, in retrospect, seems to have had the most influence on his early life and to inspire himself to emulate them. It's an extended thank you letter, if you like, I got you. thanking these people above all for putting him on the path of philosophy and for making it possible or at least easier for him to become a man of virtue and as good an emperor as he could be. Hmm. Well, for someone who's coming to meditations for the first time, haven't read it before, do you have any suggestions on where to start? Should they start with notebook one, or should they start with another one? 
Uh, it's the kind of book that a lot of people don't read, as it were, from cover to cover, but, you know, keep by their bedside and, and dip into for a few minutes uh, before going to sleep at night. Um, a lot of the entries throughout the notebooks are, are easy enough to understand on their own, but more of the entries of Notebook 5 have this quality. So I would definitely recommend such a person to start with Notebook 5 and then, as I say, just to, just to dip into it, go back and forth dipping into it as much as she likes. Hmm. All right. From reading the introduction to the book, um, which provides a lot of helpful information and in understanding the time period and Aurelius, you point out that he was bilingual and spoke both Latin and Greek. Do you know why he wrote the meditations in Greek as opposed to Latin? Um, well, I should say first, I think that all educated Romans were at least more or less bilingual in Greek and Latin. Latin was, of course, their first language. But when Rome conquered Greece, the process was over by the middle of the second century BC. Rome was still a relatively uncultured place. They didn't have much in the way of literature, theater, artwork, sculpture, and so on. So when they took over Greece, they also took over their culture from Greece. The Roman poet Horace famously put it this way, Captive Greece took her savage conqueror captive and brought the arts to rustic latium. In fact, the earliest works of Latin poetry were translations of Greek poems and plays. So right from the start, right from the second century BC, Greek was to Romans the language of culture, and upper-class Romans learnt the language to show that they were cultured people and to be able to read Greek literature. Mm. Okay. By Marcus's time, there was plenty of Roman literature and so on. But uh, written in Latin, mm -hmm. but but Greek remained the language that philosophers generally preferred to use, and occasionally historians too. Not least because some technical Greek philosophical terms were a bit awkward to translate into Latin. So Marcus wrote in Greek because it was still the language of philosophy. He had a very famous predecessor, the Stoic Seneca the Younger, mm -hmm. who wrote in Latin. He's the most notable counterexample, but, mm -hmm. but most philosophers were still using Greek. Okay. Well, you, you've touched on this already, but I want to make it clear for the listeners. Was Aurelius writing meditations as a guide for others or just for himself, for his own self-improvement? Yes, as I've already said, he wrote just for himself. It's instructive to compare the great Stoic teacher Epictetus from the generation before Marcus. He was a teacher, so the you he addresses in his talks is a student or a group of students. Marcus, too, uses you throughout the book, but it's always himself he's addressing. He doesn't write to change anyone else's life but his own. He doesn't tell anyone else how to live, just himself. Mm. Having said that, of course, some people do find what he says useful guides to how they want to live as well. Yeah. But here's another point. Mm -hmm. Some of the notebook entries are quite polished. Does this not suggest that he was intending others to see them at some point? I don't think so. He was an intelligent person and exceptionally well-educated. Anyone who's written anything knows that sometimes sentences just naturally or with a little thought come out well the first time. And I'm sure Marcus would have been happy to, to polish up some sentences for his own sake, not for anyone else's. 
And that, I'm sure, is, is sufficient explanation for the more elegant passages of the book. Besides, what Marcus says is altogether too revealing of personal issues, mm-hmm. especially his struggle with anger and the difficulty that he found in coping with other people. He occasionally savages the people around him in the court. He calls them liars and crooks, for instance, at one point. No one, and especially an emperor whose position depended to a large extent on others' perception of him, would have shown these sides of himself to other people. So I'm absolutely sure that the book was written to be read only by himself, was written for and by himself, that's all. Okay. Well, now, let's shift gears a little bit. In the book, and you've already made reference to this as well, and in numerous annotations you provide, there are countless references to Stoicism. Um, Is it necessary for someone who wants to read meditations to understand Stoicism? I wouldn't say it was necessary, no. Many people have read meditations without knowing Stoicism and have enjoyed the book and benefited from their reading. But I think a little knowledge of Stoicism increases the depth of one's reading of the book, because Stoicism was Marcus's framework. What he aspired to be was a good man in the Stoic way, and the way he looked at the world was through lenses that had been influenced by his study of Stoicism. And moreover, although he doesn't use them very often, he does sometimes use Stoic technical terms. So I had to write notes to explain what he meant on these occasions. So the introduction I wrote to the book gives a sketch of Stoicism, and the notes add to this sketch or refer back to it. Uh, As I say, what I hope to do, what I hope to have done by this was to increase the depth of of a reader's reading of the book. Well, let me ask you this, since this is a translation, there, and there are other translations of meditations, the obvious question is, why have another translation, and what is different about yours? I find this a difficult question, Mike, <laughs> um, because um, the only answer I can give to it might sound a little arrogant. I mean, look, every writer or artist of any kind has to believe that they have something unique to offer, Otherwise, they wouldn't put brush to canvas or pen to paper in the first place. Why bother? There'd be no motivation. No one sets out to do a second-rate piece of work. So I believed that I could do a better translation of Marcus than had been done before. Um, I'm a very experienced translator of ancient Greek. I've got over 30 volumes of translations in print. Uh, I do believe that my translation is better. And happily, a lot of the people who've reviewed the book also agree, whether they're professional reviewers, as it were, or Amazon reviewers. Well, for for our listeners, let me add my own perspective on it, and that is that the annotations provided, what folks might know as footnotes, uh, and the introduction provide much more information than I'm familiar with in other versions. Well, let me ask you one other question. That's the other thing I was going to go on to say. Sorry sorry. to interrupt there, Mike. That's okay. Is is that the other real difference about the book is is the number of notes. Yeah. Um, That suits my nature anyway. I like notes. I like explaining things that might be obscure or referencing a modern film that occurred to me as relevant to that particular entry in the notebooks. But it was chiefly due to the publisher, Basic Books. When they approached me to do the book, they specifically said that they wanted it to be the annotated edition, as it says on the jacket. Yeah. So I wrote the notes, 
and also a fairly extensive introduction to contextualize the notebooks themselves. I've also done much the same for a forthcoming translation of Epictetus for Chicago University Press. Okay. Well, and now, not knowing much about translations, are there some problems in doing a translation of a text written in Greek back during Marcus Aurelius's day and translating that into modern English? Um, no special problems in Marcus's case, just all the usual problems that every translator faces. The overriding one, the one that, that I, as it were, have in the back of my mind all the time I'm translating, but which not all translators are sufficiently sensitive to, I think, is walking the tightrope between producing a translation that's faithful to the original, but is also good modern English, not clunky translationese. And again, I should say that people who've reviewed my book say, yeah, it reads like proper English. So not everybody manages to do that. Translation shouldn't be the practice of finding one English word for one Greek word and then using just that one word every time the Greek word occurs. That's okay if you're translating a technical term, but not otherwise. Some Greek words are better translated as phrases rather than single words. The word translation means that you're transferring a text from one language to another. So I must use the idioms of English, not those of the original Greek text, if they're jarring in English. And apart from walking this tightrope, there are all the little more technical difficulties. Um, you know, if, if all words referred to concrete objects, it would be easy. You know, trapeza in, in ancient Greek is table in modern English, no problem. But there are many ancient Greek words that have no exact equivalent in English, and some of them are important words. Uh, one of them is, one that occurs to me is, is uh, psyche, psyche, uh, which is often translated soul, but in many contexts it's better translated mind or temperament even. Or then there's the stoic technical term hormer, which is usually translated impulse, and indeed that's how I translated it for Marcus. And that translation impulse is okay, but in English it carries a hint of impulsiveness, which is quite wrong. So when you first use it, you have to write a footnote to say impulse is a translation form there, but it has no you know, connotations of impulsiveness. Mm -hmm. the, most, the most difficult issue, I think, for translators from ancient Greek is sentence structure. Hmm. Greek sentences can trickle on for line after line, and it's usually poor practice to translate such a sentence literally in English. It usually makes for pretty unreadable English. But in Marcus's case, there was one such sentence where it worked. And since it's one of my favorite sentences in the whole book, I'd like to read it. Okay. It'll show just how long some Greek sentences can be. But more to the point, it's a tour of, tour de force in itself. It occupies most of the third entry of the 12th notebook. So is that okay, Mike, if yeah, I read it? absolutely. Okay. <clears throat> he says, It follows that if you separate from yourself, that is, from your mind, all that other people do or say, all that you yourself have done or said, all that disturbs your peace of mind as looming in the future, all the properties of the body that encases you, or of the spirit that is embedded in it, that are not subject to your volition, and all that swirls around you, driven by the whirlwind of the external world, 
until your mind has been released from the bonds of fate and lives purified, untrammeled, on its own, doing what is right, willingly accepting everything that happens and speaking the truth. If, I say, you detach your command center from what has become attached to it as a result of its being attracted by bodily feelings, and from all that is to come and all that has gone, and make yourself, in Empedocles' words, a rounded sphere rejoicing in encircling solitude, and train yourself to live the only life you have, that is, in the present moment, you'll be able to pass what remains of your life up until your death with a mind that is tranquil in itself, kind to others, and at peace with your guardian spirit. Wow. <laughs> all, all, all one sentence, but it actually, you know, as I say, it was pretty unique for such a long sentence in Greek to work in English. So I was really pleased to be able to do it. And I think it's a beautifully constructed sentence. It and is. It's, yeah, it's it a is. Beautiful philosophy, too. <clears throat> I followed it completely. All right. Well, we're about to run out of time. Are there any, as, as somebody who's worked in, in classical studies for a long time, are there any particular entries in meditations that resonated with you? Um, no particular entries that I can remember at the moment. Um, I mean, it would have been about three years ago that I was translating this. But I came to really appreciate the core tenet of Stoicism. It's clearer in a writer like Epictetus than in Marcus, but that, to repeat, is because Marcus was not having to clarify anything for anyone since he wasn't addressing others. I would phrase the core tenet I'm thinking of along the lines of this. Accept what you cannot do anything about. Change what you can for the better. Some things, as Epictetus puts it, are up to us, and some things aren't. We can't do anything about the events that happen to us, or about being born as a future emperor of Rome, for instance. But we can do something about our reactions to those events and to the people around us. Our desires, inclinations, choices, judgments, and intentions, all the things, in short, that make up our characters are up to us and can't be thwarted by anyone or anything else. We need to learn to accept experiences and events over which we have no control, to recognize them as indifferent, as the Stoics called them, which means neither good nor bad, and with no contribution to make to our happiness or misery, and to use them as the materials on which to practice virtue. We need to see them as the gifts of the providential God who steers and arranges everything in the universe, great and small. And in this way, fated events become opportunities, not constraints. This was Marcus's framework, and the foundation of everything he says in meditation. Well, well, it seems to me as good advice today as it was in Marcus Aurelius's time. Unfortunately, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, you've been listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and I've been speaking with Robin Waterfield about his wonderful new translation of Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Um, I, I strongly encourage, if you have any interest, to pick this up. It's filled with helpful annotations to assist in understanding not only um, Marcus Aurelius's writings, but the time period, the history, and Stoicism. Robin, is there a website or something that folks can go to on social media to learn more about not only meditations and your translation, but other books that you've written or translated? Well, I have a website, but I'm afraid I don't do social media. Okay. My website is uh, www.robinwaterfield.com. And I'd like to just take the opportunity to say that this uh, conversation was very um, timely because the, the book 
is going to be out in paperback at the very end of August. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I strongly recommend it to folks that have an interest, in, and even if you know nothing about Marcus Aurelius, pick it up. There's so much to learn from the book. Robin, thanks so much for being on the show. Well, thank you, Mike. That was fun. 